This is Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. My guest is Samuel Klaus Hunaki. His book is States of Liberation, Gay Men Between Dictatorship and Democracy in Cold War Germany. Samuel, welcome to Life Elsewhere. Thank you so much for having me. So first of all, this book of yours is quite a read. There's, there's, it's packed full of facts and details. And I, I'm, I'm just thinking to myself, as I finished your book, I was thinking, gosh, what a lot of work. That I mean, a lot of work goes into any book, but there's, there's such a lot of information in this book. Before we go any further, just talk to me about the beginnings and the middle and, and, and kind of the end, putting this book together, because... This is not just something you went, oh, okay, I think I'll write about gay men. But you had to really go into this, didn't you? Yeah, no, that's that's true. And, and thank you. I'm glad you, you enjoyed reading it. Um, no, it, a, a lot of work went into this, as, as you say. Uh, so I um, first sort of got the idea of writing about this topic when I was a graduate student. This was before it was a book. It was my dissertation for my PhD. And so I, I first got this idea of writing about gay men in about 2015, um, when I was sort of starting out on my, on my PhD research. And I initially went to Germany for a summer. I went to Berlin to sort of do some exploratory work in the archives, talk to people, uh, sort of start reading around in what had already been published on this topic. And at the time, not that much had been published. A few, a few sort of more academic books, um, a few articles, a bit of stuff in German, uh, but compared to the history of homosexuality in the Nazi period or in the Weimar period, which are much sort of more thoroughly studied, after World War II, there, there wasn't a lot that was written. So I just found an immense amount of material in the archives. I mean, which as, as you sort of said, and as you can see in the book, there's just so much that happened in these decades. And so I then came back to Berlin for a year. I spent a year both in Berlin and traveling around Germany, going to different archives, conducting interviews uh, with over 20 people who lived through this period. And then it took years to write the book that you now have sitting in front of you. So it, yes. it has been a huge amount of work and it's of course so pleasurable to now see it in a sort of finished form and to see it out in the world. Sammy, were you surprised when you started on this endeavor, how much, how much information there was, the archives, particularly in East Germany, it just it struck me one of the things that sticks out as I'm reading the book, just how much information you've collated and how much was available. It it did really surprise me. I had expected and, and interestingly, I was not only surprised by how much of, a, of certain types of information were available. I was also surprised when there was less available on other topics that I sort of expected. So yeah. um in particular, as you mentioned, in East Germany, I just found this incredible wealth of sources. And most of that came from the Stasi archives. So the East German secret police, which we better know as the Stasi, yes. they spied on, on queer people and on gay men. And uh, when I first went to that archive, it's, it's an archive that's protected by very uh, sort of stringent privacy controls because the people who the Stasi spied on are still alive today, right? Yes, and so yes. they need to sort of protect the privacy of those individuals. And as a result of that, unlike other archives that historians go to work at, 
uh, a researcher doesn't have access to the sort of catalog of the of the archive. Rather, you contact an archivist, you tell them what it is you're working on, and then they tell you what sources are available. Yes. So I had written to them in uh, about 2015 and described this project to them and said I was interested in writing about um, about queer people in East Germany. And so uh, they wrote back and said, great, come in. Uh, I came in and the first day I was there, they plopped this binder down in front of me with maybe two or 300 single space pages. And it was simply a list of all of the different files they had, all of the different archival files they had that in some way touched on the subject of homosexuality. And they said, look through this and let us know which of these files you want to see. You know, it was just it was just a totally eye-opening moment. I had not anticipated there being that degree of information and that sort of wealth of, of sources available. And also I, I had not anticipated that even if it was available, that it would all be available, be made available to me um, as a sort of graduate student working on this topic. So yes. that was sort of the, the biggest and most exciting find of, of most of the research process. Yes. And then, of course, the big surprise for me, and I'm presuming for you, was the attitude in East Germany to homosexuality was far more liberated. Is that the word? I mean, I, it's, maybe it's the wrong word, but it was, it was a lot more accepted than in West Germany, it's, which was bizarre to me. I was really, really surprised about that. No, that's, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. It, that was absolutely the biggest surprise, the biggest sort of shock to me when I, when I set out on this. I mean, when I set out on this research, I sort of had this Cold War mindset yeah. in, it was informing how I was looking at it, right? I sort of thought, okay, probably what I'm going to find is that West Germany was better for queer people, East Germany, not so much, right? We have the democratic West, we have the communist East. And as you say, what I found was not exactly the opposite of that, but certainly that that stereotype or that sort of Cold War divide didn't really hold up. And in a lot of ways, especially when we look at the realm of policy and laws, East Germany was a lot more accepting or tolerant of queerness than West Germany was. And so um, it, it was sort of a progression as I was conducting this research, as I sort of slowly came to the realization that this was the case and that this was as it turned out, one of the big points I wanted to make in this book. You know, Samuel, I don't think anybody can avoid this when they're, when they're reading a book, that you, you sort of go back to your own, your own experiences and your own, you know, what you, what you think you know. And there's something that came up for me in reading your book. And, and actually, what, before I even started it was when I read the title and then the subtitle. I'm thinking, well, you know, there is a, and forgive me if this sounds so strange but th there seems to be and for me from my own experience a very specific kind of attitude to queerness in Germany and I don't know whether that was just me and, and, and who I've met throughout my life and experiences that I, I, I don't know but it just struck me that way and as I read your book it sort of kind of confirmed it for me but I want to throw that to you am I right in thinking that Germany does or, or Germanic people do have a very certain je ne sais quoi, if you like, to queerness. Is, is, am, am I right? Yeah, no, I think you are right. I think that there's a very, um, 
I don't know if special is the right word, but a very yeah. peculiar relationship to, to sex and sexuality in general, yeah. but especially to queerness. Yeah. And I think that, you know, in some sense, it goes back all the way to the 19th century when sort of modern conceptions of sexuality even first arose, first sort yes. of started to come into usage. And, and uh, you know, in the, in the 19th century, late 19th, early 20th century, other countries saw homosexuality as a particularly German thing. It was referred to as the, the German vice in other countries, for instance. Yes. So, uh, so, so you do already have that. And, and that's in part because, well, for a few reasons, you have this law, paragraph 175, that criminalizes male homosexuality. And that dates back to the late 19th century and is really associated with Germany specifically. You have the first gay publications in the world in Germany in the late 19th century. You have the first sort of homosexual rights movement that gets started in the late 19th and early 20th centuries in Germany. So you have this very specific connection. And I think that that lasts and that sort of endures uh, and then, and then, sort of on the flip side, you have the Nazi persecution yes. of, of queer people, which I sort of start the book with. Yes. Uh, and and um, you know, there aren't really a lot of other countries that have so um, specifically and viciously targeted queer people. I mean, you, you certainly have other countries that have pers persecuted queer people, but the degree to which this was a real phobia or mania for the Nazis is if not unique, it's at least extreme. Yes. And, and so already there by the middle of the 20th century, you have sort of the two absolute extremes of how Germans have treated queerness. Uh, and then I think what my book tries to show is that you have these two very sort of peculiar evolutions on the topic of, of queerness or of homosexuality in both East and West Germany that sort of you know eventually intertwine and, and become what Germany is today. And I do think you know, I think in the epilogue, I, I in particular reflect on all of this yes. mediated through my own personal experiences as a gay man who has spent a lot of time in Germany yes. and in Berlin. And I, you know, and as I say, in, in some ways, it's one of the most liberated, wonderful cities in the world to be queer in. Um, on the other hand, though, there's a lot of sort of phobias and unspoken taboos and sort of a sense of uneasiness that still, I think, lingers. I um, you know, queerness is not perfectly accepted in higher education in, in Germany, uh, to, certainly not to the extent that it is in English speaking countries. Um, I, I recall when I was here doing my research, having a dinner at the home of family friends who didn't know that I was gay. Uh, and they were talking, they lived in Schöneberg, which is a sort of traditionally gay neighborhood in, of, of what was West Berlin. Mm -hmm. And they sort of talked about how they lived in, you know, the nice part of Schöneberg, not the one where the, not the part of the city where the sort of queers lived. And um, again, not knowing that I was a gay man and it was very sort of uncomfortable. And, and the sort of thing I don't think you would expect to hear anymore in places like the US or the UK, uh, at least among sort of, you know, these were um, a lawyer and a journalist living in Berlin. It, it was it was very jarring. So I think you, you have these two realities or these two cities almost sort of living side by side still. Yes. You know, I want to pick up on something you said about the extreme attitudes towards gayness in particularly in West Germany. When I was at um, when I was at college at art school in the UK, I had a professor who 
loved talking about Germany and he loved talking about sexuality and he, he would link that into art and whatever. But I always remember something he said. You've got to remember that the Germans regarding sex are self-loathing when it comes to something that they really like. I was like, was fascinated by that and it stuck with me for a long time. I just, I'm just throwing that out there. Just think it, yeah, no, that's, um, that's such a fascinating, I mean, I think what I always think about is, um, in particular, the sort of the sex wave or sex fella of the 1960s, which was very intimately connected to sort of student activism, yep. 1968 in, in West Germany. And uh, Tony Judd, in his memoirs, talked about 68 and about experiencing it in different parts of Europe. And I'm not going to remember it perfectly, but in those memoirs, he says something about how the Germans he met when he was in West Germany in the late 60s were sort of terrifyingly obsessed with sex. They saw it, you know, as this sort of a way to become liberated. And so they were going to do it to become liberated. And yeah. uh, it, you know, he's sort of, you know, giving a caricature, but it does, I think, capture a certain um, intensity with which Germans think and talk about sex and sexuality. And of course, one of the ironies of 68 and of the sex fella is that it almost completely uh, elides queerness, right? It's all about heterosexual sex. It's all about, you know, men and women. And, and also it's, it's mostly men talking about it, right? It's mostly men talking about wanting to have sex with women. And uh, so, Anyway, but I, I think that there is something there in, in the sort of German culture, the German ethos. Yes, yes. Let me remind my listeners, I'm talking to Samuel Close Hunicki. His book is States of Liberation, Gay Men Between Dictatorship and Democracy in Cold War Germany. What I like about your book is that you've broken down, broken it down into chapters, of course, uh, but you give us a lots of different areas to to explore and, and what i did like what i do like about it and i and i hope you don't mind that me be doing this but i would delve into the book every so often be something would, would spark an idea and i go what does he say about gays gayness with spies and cold war germany and there of course you've got a you've got a chapter on it so i sort of like i, I read the whole book but then i went back into it and, and and picked on different different chapters but let's talk about gay spies because that was something you know, having grown up in the UK and with Anthony Burgess and the whole, you know, with, with the, the, the Russians and the, you, you know where that's going. Yeah. But, it always, <laughs> it, but it always struck me that that must have been something which filtered over in, into Germany. And in fact, that, that is the case, right? Yeah. And, and so, I mean, that, that in some ways is the chapter that I... Um, wrestled with the most and was the most surprising to, to me, right? Yes. If you had asked me when I was setting out on this research, if I would have a chapter on gay spies, I would have laughed at you. Uh, but, you know, I, I guess when I started out on this, I always thought of that as being purely a trope created by prejudice, right? That it was a way of smearing queer people to say that they were security threats, that they were likely to be spies, that they were likely to be working for the Soviet Union. And in fact, you know, just to be clear, my book does not argue that it's anything other than, uh, than a stereotype. Yeah. Yes. But what I found, right, is that in fact, there were these security agencies, both the Stasi and it seems West German intelligence, that were not only acting on that prejudice to purge queer people from their own ranks, 
but also to go out and try and recruit people, gay people, to spy for them in the other country. Yes. And so, um, and again, this wasn't something I sort of was really thinking about when I set out on this research, but it was something I kept finding in the archives. I would be at the Stasi archive. I was at the regional archive in, in Dresden, in, in Saxony, in what used to be East Germany. Um, or I'd be looking through articles from a major West German newspaper. And I kept finding these stories about gay spies, sort of, you know, like the Cambridge Five um, yes. a little bit, or, or you know, Whitaker Chambers and, and Alger Hiss in the U.S., and, you know, none of these are really famous people. They aren't these sort of grand tales of espionage that capture the national attention. Um, rather, they're these much more sort of humdrum cases, everyday espionage. And, and most of them take place in divided Berlin, which we know was this sort of um, melting pot for espionage, right? There were dozens of different intelligence outfits trying to sort of... Uh, to, to, to gather intelligence in, in both East and West Berlin, especially before the Berlin Wall went up. And so I found all these cases of gay men being recruited by, or allegedly recruited by intelligence outfits, specifically because they were gay. And because these intelligence outfits had the notion that because they were gay, they had access to this gay subculture, this queer subculture that cut across class and other divisions, other social divisions. And so, you know, they could recruit a rent boy, uh, a sex worker, who then might go to a house party who, where you would have editors and politicians and aristocrats who would be in attendance. And that would be a prime way of gathering intelligence and, and also of recruiting new informants and new, new sort of uh, spies for your agency. So I found about a dozen cases of this. And, um, you know, obviously, if I were able to look in the records of the Bundesnachrichtendienst, which is the West German intelligence outfit, or the CIA or whatever else, I, I think you'd find even more sort of interesting stories along these lines. But mostly using Stasi files, I was already able to sort of recreate a mindset and a world where espionage, especially in the early Cold War, really did inflect life, especially in Cold War Berlin. Yes. You know, once again, with my penchant for going off on tangents, <laughs> I, and I can't help it, I'm sorry, but because we're <laughs> Because of here we are talking right now and what is going on in Ukraine and Mr. Putin, mm -hmm. it did strike me again as I read that particular chapter. I wondered whether anybody had considered that Mr. Putin's sort of uh, kind of real, very, very serious, the way he treats gay people in mm -hmm. Russia came from his time in Dresden as a member of the KGB. And whether Mr. Putin has some kind of self-loathing because maybe Mr. Putin's gay. I, 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 <laughs> <laughs> that's an interesting, I have, that's a theory I haven't heard before, but I think, I think, you know, I, I'm not a Russia expert, so that's obviously the, the sort of caveat there, but I, I've never heard Putin himself make the connection between his experiences in Dresden and how he feels about queerness and, and homosexuality. Right. Yeah, 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 um, yeah, yeah. But that, that said, you know, a, as I talk about in my book, it, it, in the 80s, which is when Putin was there, uh, that is precisely when the East German government starts promulgating all these sort of surprising gay-friendly policies. And, and, you know, homosexuality all of a sudden becomes much more visible in East Germany in the mid to late 1980s. And so 
it's certainly possible that this is something that he was aware of. And it's certainly possible that he might, you know, see it as part of the reason that East Germany, why the East German regime eventually fell apart, right? I mean, I, my understanding is that one of the lessons he absolutely took uh, was that it was sort of a mistake on the part of East Germany to sort of give in to the demands of these protesters and, and to let people cross the border and so on, um, and, and essentially to not to not shoot, right? Uh, and, and so it's certainly conceivable, even if we don't have any direct evidence, that maybe he did see these changes and think that it, it was part of that more general, maybe weakening of the regime. Yes, and then coming up to present day, um, from what I understand, Kiev had a very thriving gay community and, and presumably still does. Let's move on just a little bit and going back to putting the book together. I, I'm curious to know, you went to archives, you did a lot of research, you spoke to people, but how easy was it for you to get to talk to people? Were people willing to say, oh yes, this, talk to me about that. Yeah, um, for the most part, it it wasn't too hard to find people, which was a refreshing, um, you know, that, that was something that I was worried about when I embarked on this research. I thought maybe people would be reluctant or, or they, wouldn't, they wouldn't perhaps even see it as historically significant. I think that's oftentimes a struggle is that people have their own idea of, of how they maybe fit into history or don't fit into history. And um, overall, though, I was pleasantly surprised. And I think part of that has to do with how I went about it. So I, I mostly used what's known as a, a snowball method. So I started off interviewing uh, one person uh, who was actually an American who had lived in Berlin for um, part of the 80s. And then he put me in touch with friends of his, they put me in touch with other friends, so on and so forth. So that was how I got most of, of the interviews. There were a few other people, there were a few activists, sort of prominent activists uh, who who were already sort of in the historical memory, who I contacted specifically because I thought they had really important stories to tell. This was especially true on the East Berlin side. I, I contacted Ursula uh, Zilge, who was one of the main leaders of the gay and lesbian movement in East Germany, and, and Peter Fausch, also one of the main leaders. Uh, and they were just incredible fonts of information. Probably the, the most unusual and in some ways informative interview I did was with uh, Lothar de Maizière, who was the only freely elected prime minister of East Germany yes. and not, not a gay man. However, he had first been a uh, violist and a lot of queer people in East Germany had taken up, you know, jobs in music and the arts, um, not so dissimilar from, from Western societies today, uh, yes. right? And, and so as a result of that, he knew a lot of queer people and then he left that and became a lawyer and essentially got involved as a lawyer in the gay movement, gay and lesbian movement in East Germany, uh, specifically in the sort of context of offering legal advice to queer people on how to create a facsimile marriage, how to draw up wills, powers of attorney, and so on and so forth. And I sort of stumbled across this by, by happenstance. I was looking at other documents and his name came up a couple of times and it's such a distinctive name. It immediately, I immediately knew who it was. And so it came up frequently enough that I thought, okay, there, there must be something going on here. So I found his email. He, he works as a private lawyer now, emailed him and 
the next morning woke up with a a voicemail from him saying, when can we meet to talk about this? And I arranged something a few months later, came into his office, got, you know, a, a cup of coffee and he just regaled me with all of these stories about, you know, working in the movement in this way about queer people he had known in East Germany. And then really interestingly about his view of these sort of policy changes that were taking place in the 80s and how importantly they transcended Germany's reunification and how he had sort of tried to write some of these changes into law, how he had tried to influence policy in West Germany uh, in that process of reunification. And probably one of the most enlightening things he said, and to uh, for your listeners who may not know, you know that much about German politics, this man is a representative from the Christian Democratic Union. He's center-right. He's a conservative. He's a Christian. Uh, so I was not expecting him to be this sort of enthusiastic proponent of, of gay and lesbian rights. And he said that he thought East Germany had been more tolerant than West Germany, and that through reunification, that tolerance had sort of seeped over into West Germany. Uh, so it, anyway, I could go on and on about yes, this no, interview. No, no, no. <laughs> but what's interesting there is that you led straight into where I was going to go next and talk about politics, because your chapter, uh, let me see here, uh, three million votes, gay citizenship empowering West Germany. And then the other there's another one that you talk about. You talk about politics. I can't remember, I can't find it right now, but it doesn't matter. But <laughs> politics is a very is a very important part of the story and of your book. And I'm curious to know, Samuel, whether. When you started to dig into the to the political side of things, how it all kind of like with East Germany and West Germany and then the, the, the unification, whether that without that divide in the first place, how things would have been. You, you see where I'm going? Yes. Yeah. 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 No, that's such an I mean, you know, part of what makes Cold War Germany so fascinating for any, not just this topic, but for any topic, is that you have these two states that are carved from the same nation, and they are set on these completely different social, economic, political trajectories. And it's almost as though you you couldn't design a better sort of historical experiment uh, for whatever question it is that you're interested in, right? You can sort of see how politics, how economics, how different social formations affect a whole range of topics. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think obviously the point I'm making is that East and West Germany, even though they shared the same history, they shared the same language, they shared the same culture, they were very early on set on these two completely different trajectories when it came to sexual politics, sexual morality, um, the sort of the place of, of queerness in their societies. How how they would have evolved in the absence of that division is a fascinating question. And I, you know, I think in part it would really depend on what what a non-unified Germany would have looked like. Would it have been all West Germany? Would it have been a communist state? Would it have been, you know, Stalin famously floated the idea of a demilitarized unified Germany, sort of on the Austria model uh, that the US and uh, rejected. But Uh, I think in all of these cases, um, in some senses, I think there there would be similarities. There would still, I think, have been elements of persecution, um, sort of resonances of the Nazi period long into the the Cold War period, you know, into the 50s and 60s. Um, There probably would have been some form of gay, gay rights, gay and lesbian rights activism 
in the 1970s and 1980s. Surely AIDS and HIV would have come to this, you know, sort of yep. imaginary unified country. Um, but in terms of would you have had these sort of really remarkable political moments, um, both in West Germany and in East Germany? I mean, you know, in West Germany, you have this incredibly rambunctious active movement in the 1970s that even gets so far as I write about to have a national podium discussion with the major parties where they get, you know, important representatives from all the major parties in one of the largest Congress halls in Germany's capital in Bonn at the time. And they, or the idea is to ask them questions about gay policies. Now it gets disrupted and it, it doesn't go as planned, but that sort of political coup in 1980 would be unthinkable in the US or in other Western countries, right? So, so you have these remarkable political achievements and it's, I, I, one of the arguments I make is that I think it's the peculiarity of that Cold War tension and the existence of these two, two Cold War German states that in a lot of ways helps to drive queer politics in both countries. So it, um, it's hard to know <laughs> yes. what it no, would no, look but, like. But, but well explained. My guest is Samuel Klaus Hunecke. He's an assistant professor of history at George Mason University. And I should point this out to my listeners. Your book is published by University of Toronto Press. And in my opinion, put out some terrific titles and, and uh, people should certainly look at their catalog. The title of the book, by the way, is States of Liberation, Gay Men Between Dictatorship and Democracy in Cold War Germany. Your book has only just come out. It's only just been published. Or is it like in a couple of days time, isn't it? I think it's like. Yeah, I think officially, officially it gets published in a few days. A it, few it, days. I mean, okay. yeah. Okay. So, so. The previews of the book, because I got the book a few weeks back, and I'm sure other people did as well. Have you had any reaction from the queer community? Has there been any, how do I say this? Has there been any kind of, like, questioning reaction? Uh I don't think it's been sort of in the world long enough right. to, okay. to get yeah. that yet. I, I am sure I will. I, you know... Um, Although I think, I you know, it, it's sort of written for two audiences, right? There's yeah. sort of the, the queer audience, and then there's people who are interested in the Cold War, in modern European history, modern yes. German history. And I, I think, in, I guess in some senses, I'm expecting more of a pushback or, or maybe more questions from the second group, in the sense that I think uh. that Cold War mindset of the evil East and the good West is still very firmly entrenched in people's minds. Right. And, and, you know, my, I'm certainly not the first person to, to challenge that dichotomy or that sort of stereotype. But I think, you know, my book does it in a sort of new way. And it, it, it's particularly forceful, I think, in trying to say that this stereotype we have is doesn't match reality. Uh, and so if anything, that's sort of where I anticipate maybe a little bit more, um, a little bit more pushback. And I have, you know, in the past written op-eds or, or I um, several years ago published a short essay that sort of previewed some of these arguments in Boston Review and have gotten, you know, some emails from readers expressing skepticism about this. Uh, yes. And I I think because it's just so firmly entrenched in our minds, it's hard to, it's, I think, sometimes hard to accept what, what the sources say. 
Yes. Do you think? Do you think that's prevalent these days? You think that's still? I mean, that's still that that whole. Yes, I get with what's going on right now with Ukraine. I guess. Well, yeah. Yes, with yeah, absolutely. It it, it is. I, I think. I mean, I think what's happening in Ukraine will sort of, if anything, more firmly entrench this idea that there is a sort of. Um, necessary division or or separation you know between sort of the west and the rest of the world and in particular the west and russia and i think you know a lot of historians a lot of scholars uh who specialize in russia and ukraine uh have been trying to i think fight back or push back against that becoming the narrative yeah um but i i do think that uh when you're faced with an enemy in a situation like this, when you're faced with a country committing the kinds of atrocities that Russia is currently committing, uh, any sort of plea for um, a nuanced understanding can at least in that moment sort of go out the window. Yeah. You've got lots of charts and illustrations <laughs> and, and all kinds of things in the book. And, and there's one, there's one, and I, I, I'm not gonna go to it right now, but there's one where you list all the clubs and, and, and gay parlors and whatever, which I just found fascinating. I found, I, I, and I was, I was thinking to myself as I'm looking at that and as I'm reading it, I'm thinking, I bet Mr. Uh, Hunaki had a lot of fun with this, just putting that together. <laughs> I did. I I mean, I like numbers. I actually, yeah. in uh, in a previous life, I I was, um, I actually have two degrees in mathematics as, okay. as well as, as, as obviously in history. And um, so I, I, I like numbers and I like historical arguments that don't just rely on anecdote, but also can, you know, bring in sort of statistical evidence to sort of undergird those arguments. And so as you point out, I have a lot of charts because um, they help me visualize and, and to, to sort of understand what I'm talking about. And so I, I hope they help the reader understand what I'm talking about too. And, and as you say, with the, um, with the the bars and the clubs and saunas and so forth, that was tremendous fun. And I actually, you know, what what wound up getting published in the book is sort of a snapshot of the work yes. I did there. It uh, I spent a lot of time with various gay guides, um, in particular the Spartacus guide, which is this well known sort of yeah. Zagat guide for for queer people, and uh, you know, sort of mapping and charting how these where these clubs and bars and so forth were sprouting up, how they evolved over the course of the seventies and eighties, you know, and um, I have all these huge sort of Excel spreadsheets with all this information about <laughs> these different bars and so on. And, and obviously some of them that are still in existence I've, I've been to. Uh, so it, it, that was a huge amount of fun for me. And, and again, um, I think helped me, it, it was a different way into the material from, you know, between the interviews and the sort of archival material, this was another way of thinking about sort of urban space and how, um, you know, how the changes I was charting weren't just changes in how people were talking about homosexuality or what, what policies were getting passed, but actually just on the level of how many bars were there that queer people could go to in, you know, various, both Berlin, but also various random university towns around the country. Yes. While we're on that subject, I'd be remiss if I didn't didn't ask you about this, uh, partly because I do a music show as well. And, and uh, I get sent a lot of music from Germany and there's such such wonderful things coming up, particularly in the electronic field. And of course, Berlin is 
the center of the universe, really, for, for club music. Just talk mm -hmm. to me about mm -hmm. that, Samuel. Oh, wow. That's such a good question. And I'm not unfortunately <laughs> the right person to answer it. I, I, I mean, I can tell you that, you know, I know it's, it's the center of the world. It's, you know, whenever I spend time here, you hear such wonderful, um, you know, club music, uh, techno in particular, you, yes. um, it, it, for any of your listeners who know what Bergheim is, it's sort of yes, the yes. techno club, yes. um, that I have, I, you know, spent a fair amount of time. <laughs> and, and I, um, it also, I, you know, I, I love opera and classical music. It's also a fabulous city for that. It has some really wonderful singers and directors. It has three major operas. So just for music all around, it's, it's one of the best cities in the world. Um, and, you know, in some sense that also, I think is a legacy of its divided nature, both in terms of the institutional support that it had a lot of institutional support from both the East and the West. Berlin was a sort of showcase city for both countries. Um, but then also the fact that it was sort still sort of a destroyed city when it was reunited in, in 1990, yes. right? And it was being sort of patched back together and it was an incredibly cheap place to live. It drew a lot of artists and musicians um, and evolved this really special sort of almost underground um, uh, sort of clubbing culture that, yes. that still exists today. So, so there's all sorts of strands. I, you know, I am not an expert. No, no, no. That's I. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got it. Um, America is is a very strange place in regards to morals, and I, I don't have to go into the whole thing. You, you, you know where? <laughs> oh, I'm going. I know. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Having said that, Germany too has um, has this very sort of strict. Uh, religious um, segment of the population. Talk to me about that gayness in Germany equals the 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 highly ho holier than thou religious aspect. Yeah, no, that's such a good. I mean, I guess one thing I quickly would want to point out on, on the you know question of the U.S. being so weird is that um, because it is the U.S. The U.S. is a totally strange, you know, has a has a unique history. It's a strange place, especially when it comes to yeah. sexuality. And yet, because so much queer history is written by American academics, its experiences, especially in the second half of the 20th century, are oftentimes assumed to be sort of the the paragon or the archetype for how um, you know queer populations elsewhere develop. Or, yes. or, or and so one of Yes. One of the big things I, I really wanted to push back on in this book is the notion that what happened in Germany or anywhere else is just sort of a replica of, um, you know, of, of what had happened in, in the U.S. So just, that, yeah. Let me just stop you there for a second, because I think that really is the essence of why this book is so interesting, because that's exactly what you've done, Samuel. You've said to people that have that idea, uh-uh, no. Germany is very different. It's extremely, I mean, you can go across the border to the Netherlands and it's different there. And then hop mm -hmm. over the over the channel to the UK, go to London, and you've got a whole nother just set of, yeah. you know, situation. Yeah. Right. Please. No, I, I, yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. I'm, I'm glad that you you got that because that's exactly what I'm trying to say, right, is that that each country has this very specific and unique sort of development when it comes to these issues. And, and I think that has ramifications and I'll, I'll get to your question about religion i promise but, <laughs> yeah, but i think yeah, it yeah, does yeah. have you know ramifications today for how we think about 
um, queer rights and queer liberation in other countries that that may have more repressive politics. I think there is at times uh, a move or the notion that we can sort of come in and tell other countries to do the same things that we've done and that it'll work. And I think that sort of ignores the fact that that how sexuality is treated in a culture and and what, again, going back to the title of the book, what liberation looks like, what sort of state of liberation will evolve in a country, um, it's highly context specific. It's it's not just that you can sort of take what happened in the US and, and export it. So um, I'm, I'm glad that that came through, yes, but, yes. Uh, but you'd asked about religion and right, in Germany, uh, you know, Germany is such a fascinating country when it comes to religion, because it is the site of the Protestant Reformation, you know, yeah, going back yeah. centuries. And because of that, and because it originally was this, you know, sort of amalgamation of small, tiny little principalities, right? The Holy Roman Empire had over 300 different principalities in it, and each prince got to choose their own religion. And so when Germany finally unifies in the 19th century, you have about two thirds of the population Protestant and a third Catholic. Uh, and, and initially Otto von Bismarck is the first chancellor of a unified Germany. Uh, and he wages a sort of political war against the Catholics in, in the first years of the German empire's existence. So, so religion is intensely important in Germany. It's intensely politicized. Uh, it's politicized by the Nazis as well. You have, um, you know, uh, efforts by some leading Nazis to sort of do away with Christianity. You have efforts by others to uh, sort of subvert it and come up with a sort of Aryan version of, of Christianity. And so by the time that the Cold War rolls around, uh, you have East Germany, which is overwhelmingly Protestant. 16 out of 17 million citizens in East Germany are Protestant in, in 1949 when East Germany is created. Um, and West Germany is about half half. Um, it's, it's more evenly divided. And political Catholicism is incredibly important in West Germany, especially in its first decade or so. Um, and that's a big part of the, of the anti-gay animus that colors West Germany in the 1950s and 1960s. You have the Christian Democratic Union uh, in charge. Konrad Adenauer is the chancellor for the first um, you know, many years, uh, first 12 years or so of, of East Germany's or West Germany's existence. Uh, and the sort of you know, homophobia that pervades um, the churches at that particular moment is incredibly influential in maintaining paragraph 175, this law that criminalizes homosexuality. It's maintained in its Nazi formulation in West Germany for 20 years, yes. leading to the um, convictions of over 50,000 men in that period. And actually, there's a wonderful film um, that just came out recently called Great Freedom um, about this very issue and uh, that, that has uh, just come out in, in English and is, is uh, getting a lot of very well-deserved attention. Um, but, but, but then in East Germany, I guess the caveat to that story of just you know, Christianity being part of, of a sort of repressive story is that in East Germany, activists in the, in the 80s actually organized under the umbrella of the Protestant church. Uh, and, and essentially, the Protestant church in East Germany is the only halfway independent institution in the communist dictatorship. And so these gay and lesbian groups are able to take advantage of that independence and organize under the umbrella of the Protestant church uh, with less interference from the government and from the secret police. Let's just go back again to one of your charts. <laughs> yes, <laughs> because, yes, gladly. Uh, 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 because 
One that fascinated me is the acceptance of homosexuality in the military and the equalization of age of consent. This yes. is fascinating. Let's just throw out a couple for my listeners. The Netherlands, acceptance of homosexuality in the military, 1974. United States, 2011. <laughs> East Germany, 1988. United Kingdom, 2000. Equalization of age of consent. Poland, 1932. Let me see here. United States, 2003. East Germany, 1987. I mean, these are these are re these are remarkable facts. When again, once again, Samuel, <laughs> when you were doing this, when you were collating this information, did your head just spin just a little bit? Yes, I. So, I Yes, it did. So that again, I like I like numbers. I like I like having these facts as a way of building arguments and thinking about the world. And and this was something where I thought, huh, I wonder when other countries did this. Because again, part of the the thing I found is and and, and was is uh, that I'm making the point about is that you have all these pro-gay policies that pass in East Germany in the 1980s and the mid to late 1980s. And two of them are are the two in that chart, right? Yes. They uh, promulgate a policy within the military that not only allows queer people to serve in the military, but tells uh, sort of, you know, local commanders to actively deconstruct animus against against homosexuals, right? This is sort of sh just really shocking. I mean, my, my head almost exploded when I saw this in the archives, yes. and I, I almost couldn't believe what I was seeing. Um, again, because at the time, I, I had just lived through not, not that long ago, uh, the fights over ending Don't Ask, Don't Tell in the American yes. military. And so the notion that East Germany was thinking of doing this in the 80s was just mind-boggling. Um, and then uh, similarly, they equalized the age of consent first through a Supreme Court ruling in 1987 and then through legislation the following year in 88. And so with both of these things, I sort of had this innate gut sense, like this is really early. This is really surprising that East Germany, again, a repressive communist dictatorship is passing these laws and, and promulgating these policies. And so I started hunting for dates of when other countries made similar changes. And, and after a lot of work, a lot of sort of scrounging around in, in, in work that other historians had done, right, you know, figuring and com collating, compiling these tables, I think the result is that it's quite shocking, right? We, we do have some other countries that were earlier than East Germany on both of these. Um, sometimes they're the usual suspects like the Netherlands, other times they're not like, like Poland. Um, but overall, the vast majority of countries in both the Western world and the, um, you know, the, the Soviet bloc only made these changes much later after the end of the Cold War. And I, yeah, my, my head did sort of uh, explode as, as I, I was doing it when I finally got the, the final project and or the, the final product of, of this chart. So um, and that, you know, I, I, it's been gratifying. Colleagues who have read my book have also sort of found this chart and thought, wow, this, <laughs> this is wild. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, this may be peculiar to me, but I do like books that are full of notes and an epilogue with more notes. I, I, I'm just always because I love to look up, look things up. I love reading. So I love to look things up. Your book has got lots of notes and a, a terrific epilogue. 
big question for you, really, I guess, this is going to be my kind of my final question. Mm-hmm. And that is in states of liberation, gay men between dictatorship and democracy in Cold War Germany, was there one big and just one, just one big thing for you, for Samuel, that you went, good gracious, I, I had never thought of that. Or something that just made you just outside of what we've just said, but something <laughs> that made you just go, good gracious. Oh, um, <laughs> I know it's a difficult question. I know <laughs> it's a difficult. I mean, I think, you know, a few of the things we've already talked about, I think, fit yeah. into that category. Right. Um, but uh, maybe maybe um, if could I I'll give you two. If, if I'm okay. allowed to yes. Go ahead. Yes. yes. <laughs> two, two, two maybe, you know, moments that have really in the archives that have really stuck with me. And it, I think, you know, it. This the story that that I'm telling is both one with a lot of pain and a lot of trauma and a lot of persecution in it. And it's also in some ways a very happy story because it's a story about things getting better. And so I guess these two moments sort of exemplify that. And, And the first one, I was in a regional archive in Western Germany and was looking at old court files of men who were Uh, tried and convicted under paragraph 175, this law that criminalized homosexuality. And I found a man who had been arrested for soliciting sex in a public toilet. Uh, And and not only that, he had been robbed by the person he was soliciting sex from, uh, beaten up and robbed. And that man was not found or arrested or or punished, but he was arrested. This this guy was arrested for, for solicitation. Um, he was sentenced, but he wasn't sentenced to prison. He was sentenced to a mental hospital where, where he would be quote unquote cured of his homosexuality. And this took place in 1944. So before the end of world war II, this was a Nazi court that did this. And periodically, even after he was kept in this institution after the war ended, after West Germany became a country and periodically the court would ask for an assessment from the institution and say, how is, how is the treatment going? And they would always reply, uh, the purpose of the treatment hasn't yet been fulfilled. That is, we haven't yet turned him straight. And he was kept there until 1969 for a quarter of a century. And that case has really stayed with me and has really, to me, exemplified the sort of horrors that, that queer men had to live through. Um, even after the collapse of Nazism and the institution of a democratic state in West yes. Germany. Um, on the converse side, as I was rooting around in the Stasi archives, uh, again, I had found evidence of these, these pro-gay policies getting passed in the 1980s. And what I really wanted, going back to sort of the, the role of politics in this story, I really wanted to know not only what policies had been passed, but why. Why had this infamously inflexible dictatorship basically done a U-turn and gone from refusing to acknowledge that gay and lesbian activists had any right to make any sort of political claim to acknowledging all of these and and passing a lot of these policies. And so I really was looking for, for what the government was thinking, what the regime was thinking. And I wound up finding um, a series of memos in the Stasi archive that culminated with a memo in 1985 that basically laid out a new 
policy for the secret police and for the government to deal with these activist groups, again, within the Protestant church. And it, a lot of the memo was repressive measures, right? They would continue spying on them. They would, um, if they found that they'd broken any laws, they would prosecute them, uh, so on and so forth. But really importantly, one of the measures that was proposed was resolving what the Stasi called the humanitarian problems of queer people in the GDR. And essentially what they meant with this locution was that they were actually going to try and address the problems that gay and lesbian activists had been telling them for over a decade they had in uh, East German society. And that is precisely when you see these uh, policies start changing. And so that was almost a smoking gun, I feel like, that I found in the archives and was this moment of incredible validation, I guess, of, of the work I was doing and, yeah. and also excitement that I could actually tell a story, not only of these policies changing, but also why they changed and how it was specifically that these incredibly brave activists had managed to convince a communist dictatorship to promulgate a slew of progressive policies. Yes. So well said. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad I asked you the question. I mean, in, in a lot of respects, that's really is what this book is about. I have been talking to Samuel Close Hunaki. Book is titled States of Liberation, Gay Men Between Dictatorship and Democracy in Cold War Germany. It's a great read, Samuel. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking with you. It's been a it's been a fascinating conversation, and you're very, very uh, you're just a nice chap to talk to. I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I've really enjoyed chatting with you. You have wonderful questions. It's it's um, always a joy to 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 chat with someone who you know has such probing questions and such such deep questions about your work. You be well. You be safe. And thank you so very much indeed. Do appreciate you joining us at Life Elsewhere. Thank you. about a big round of applause for my guest Samuel Close Hunaki. Details about his book States of Liberation are up at lifeelsewhere.co. Now over the last few weeks, in fact directly after Mr. Putin decided to invade Ukraine, I've received almost daily new releases in support of the Ukrainian people. Here then is a cut from Slava Ukraini which translates to glory to Ukraine. Now this is an exceptional compilation out of London on the House of Mythology imprint. The track I've chosen, a previously unreleased one from Daniel O'Sullivan, Waterbearer the title, which will be on his forthcoming album Rosarium, due for release on House of Mythology later this year. Until next time, please be well, be safe, and as always, I urge you, be nice, remember, it costs absolutely nothing. Bye-bye.
tall green grass, some plants remain unnoticed. When they whisper through the waves, in rippled air, an angel implores the untraceable stone in the centre of a cat's paw. Marble ruins shiver, deep, deep the waters wake. Born inside the evergreen, alive among the deciduous leaves. The holy word laced upon a knitted snare. Forgetful of the wings that daub the suns with planets bare. Awaken, O infinite knave, lies you speak, a beholden to this page. You have been listening to Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Life Elsewhere is written and produced by Norman B. Guest booking and additional research by Stephanie Lane. Behind-the-scenes assistance by James Van, Bruce Goodman, and Allison Klein. We love to hear what you think about Life Elsewhere. Send your questions, queries, and comments to info at lifeelsewhere.com. That's C-O. Thank you.